the HDL-LDL test should be retired forever. And ladies and gentlemen, if you've gotten a prescription for a drug that's based on that test, go back and get another test. You're listening to Food Integrity Now with your host, Carol Gervais. My guest today is Dr. Johnny Bowden. Dr. Bowden is a board-certified nutritionist. He is a best-selling author. Some of those books include The 150 Healthiest Foods on Earth, the Most Effective Ways to Live Longer, Living Low Carb. And he also co-authored a book with Dr. Stephen Sinatra, who is a board-certified cardiologist. And we're going to be discussing that book today. The book came out several years ago, and I interviewed Dr. Sinatra about the book. But now there's a new and expanded version of the book. And it's fascinating and life-changing information. The book we're going to be discussing today is called The Great Cholesterol Myth. So you're going to really want to pay attention to this. He is a prolific writer, and he has contributed to the New York Times, Forbes, the Huntington Post, many other periodicals. He also appeared in the documentary The Big Fat Lie, which was narrated by Dr. Mark Hyman, which is a movie about the origins of the dietary guidelines in America. And I'm really excited to have him on the show today. Johnny, welcome to Food Integrity Now. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, I'm excited to have you on to talk about your revised and expanded The Great Cholesterol Myth. And I... Really love this book. Seven years ago, I interviewed Dr. Stephen Sinatra about the first version of this book, but now it's revised and expanded. So I want to know, let's start out by letting our listeners know just a little bit more about you. Well, I came to the field of nutrition and health as a second career. I was a professional musician uh, I was, uh, I grew up in the Woodstock era of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I was addicted to every drug you can imagine. And if you're imagining real bad ones and wondering if I'm talking about that, yes, I'm talking about all of them. Um, and I got interested in fitness and health in a very kind of backwards way. Um, I was literally touring with Broadway shows. We would stay in a city for a week. We would get bored. There wasn't much to do. All the actors were in great shape. It was their job to do that. They would lift weights. Some of them brought exercise equipment with them. And out of boredom, I said, said, what is this stuff you guys do? Show me some of these weightlifting exercises. And I tell you, it was was just, I got bitten by the bug. I I was, I had been overweight, uh, considerably overweight, totally out of shape. I had just kind of completed my odyssey into drugs and alcohol. I wasn't doing any of that anymore, but I was still quite a mess. I thought that cigarettes and coffee at 11 in the morning was a good breakfast. I mean, I was a typical kind of musician. 
But when I started lifting weights and slowly but surely started to see the changes in my own energy, in my waistline, um, I just became addicted to not only to fitness and to health, but to teaching everybody else what I had learned because it had been so transformative in my body. And I, and I found out years later how many other health gurus, if you will, came to it this way to heal their own lives or their own issues. It, 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 you know, I interview people all the time, the whole list, probably many of the same people you've interviewed, and you probably know this too. Many people did come to heal something in their own lives. It was something broken. Yeah. It was something they needed fixing. Conventional medicine didn't do it for them. Uh, and they went on an odyssey. I can name five people without even thinking deeply about it who came that way. And so I was one of those. So I kind of entered the field in my early 40s. Um, and I was quite the zealot for it. I, I What I did was first of things first, I, uh, being a, a kind of overachieving New York, academically trained <laughs> Jewish origin. The first thing I thought of, I, I need to get a degree. I need letters after my name that say I know how to do this stuff. So I became certified as a personal trainer. And then I loved it even more. And I got another certification. I ultimately got six of them. And with a lot of moxie, I, one day I saw a sign in Manhattan where I then lived um, saying new gym is opening and they're hiring trainers. And that new gym in 1990 was Equinox Fitness Clubs, which you may have heard of. It's now one of the biggest chains in the, in the country, but they opened small family business, Amsterdam Avenue, New York City in September of 1990. And I was there and I was on the floor and I actually worked at Equinox for the first six or seven years of my career. I ultimately became the Dean of the Equinox Fitness Training Institute. And the only nutrition that I knew then was what they taught trainers, which was pretty piss poor. It was all kind of American Dietetic Association approved stuff. So we all believed you didn't need supplements. You could get everything you need from food. Um, you should eat a high carb, low fat diet. And believe me, I was on board with this. All of us were. The low fat mantras of the late 80s and 90s were so powerful. That when we would see people not succeeding on those programs, we would assume they were cheating. And that was the ethos of the time because right. we never questioned our advice. So if somebody was sweating it out on that treadmill and eating this low-fat diet of celery and crackers and doing everything we told them and they were not losing weight, well, they had to be lying. They had to be cheating. And, and I'm very sad to say that I was part of that. Many people were part of that. There's a wonderful TED lecture by the great Peter Atia, one of the great doctors of the country, who basically was almost in tears apologizing to the diabetic patients he treated all these years, thinking that they were just, they just didn't have any control over their food and they were just lazy. And we didn't think that necessarily, but it was certainly a blame the victim kind of mentality. And people did not always do well. Look, people almost never did well. Right. On strict low fat diets. Let's be honest. I always try to hedge my bets when I say that stuff because I know somewhere somebody's listening to this and go, I did great on the low fat diet. And I believe that. But it was a much smaller number than you might think from the way it was promoted. It just, we did as trainers saw failure after failure after failure on the exercise more, eat less kind of model. Right. It just did not work and does not work. And now I can explain why it doesn't work, but I didn't know at the time, I just knew something was wrong. 
Yeah. So how did you get into writing this book? I mean, yeah, you- I ask all the time, how did, a, how did a nice Jewish boy who was a personal trainer at Equinox become a, uh, someone who writes about heart disease and cholesterol? Right, right. I had a couple of good successes with books in the early 2000s. I, I, what, what happened basically for me was I was a believer in the low fat stuff. And my personal experience with clients told me something was amiss. And the way I saw it was that here we all were doing low fat, low fat, low fat. It's not working. And, and around this time, 1992, Atkins had just revised his new diet revolution, the book from the 70s. This was the third edition. It was getting a lot of publicity. People were talking about it. And our clients, one, I'm, I'm thinking of, I have many in mind, but one in particular who was really not quite morbidly obese, but, but considerable amount of weight. And you knew he had had it all his life and nothing had worked. And they would come in and they'd say, you know what? I want to give this Atkins thing a try. My golf buddy or my hairdresser or my best friend, they did it and they lost all this weight and they feel great. I'm going to give it a try. And I and every other trainer would say, you can't do that, man. You will get a, look, you might lose a couple of pounds. Like these models who have cocaine and asparagus for breakfast. Yeah, you might. Is that what you want to do? You're going to get a heart attack. That cholesterol and saturated fat is going to kill you. I, you can't. But they did. And here was the part that was the puzzlement for me. They didn't die. They didn't get heart attacks. In fact, in many cases, they came back with a slightly shrunken waist, which often became a considerably shrunken waist, brighter eyes, more energy, things that you can kind of feel and see if you work with people all the time. I mean, there's a, a different aura. They feel more comfortable in their body. They go to their doctors and they come back and they say, you know, the doctor said that my blood pressure is down and my HDL's up or whatever. And they were actually seeing metrics of improvement, which as someone who had trained, I was, I, I, I didn't mention that along the way to my path to music and then to fitness, I, I picked up a master's in psychology. That was going to be a career that I was going to pursue. Very, very useful in what I wound up doing that I yeah. had that master's, but I, I did have that. But in psychology, we have a concept called cognitive dissonance. It means that two ideas that do not agree with each other can't exist in the same brain without causing some upset. Like you can't believe that your next door neighbor is the kindest, most wonderful man in the world. And also find out that he just went on the top of the Texas book depository and shot up, you know, a whole bunch of people. Those two things don't fit. They're not the same. They can't exist in the same space. So here were two things, two things that for me could not exist in the same space, either cholesterol and fat cause heart disease and, and terrible other conditions that are going to happen if you eat this kind of diet. Or they don't. And, and, and the fact that these people were standing in front of me with real success stories on what was then, you know, kind of the only low carb diet around the Atkins diet wasn't, wasn't the only one I'm, I'm doing violence to the, the one everybody knew. And then of course there were the, the Eads protein um, power and, and, and many other books like that. But the Atkins diet was the one that everybody focused on as the evil uh, the evil twin of conventional medicine, like this guy should have had his medical license revoked. And he was telling people that you could eat bacon and it was just, it was heresy. And either 
either he was in fact crazy and people were going to die or something about what we had been taught wasn't quite right. Yeah. I chose to look that direction because I wasn't going to argue with the success I was seeing. Yeah. So I figured this guy is not an illusion and he's not the only one. Could there be something wrong with what we had been taught? And if you think about it, and this is so critical, if you think about every reason you have ever been taught not to eat saturated fat, every reason you have been ever taught to stay away from egg yolks, every reason you've ever been given as why you shouldn't eat animal foods, they all have to do with a fear that those things are going to raise your cholesterol, which in fact will therefore predict a heart attack. If that's not true, what happens to your dietary guidelines from 1986 on? What happens to my plate? They crumble because they're all based on this notion. Okay, so that's what I was thinking. And as soon as I started addressing that in the teaching I was doing to trainers and the writing I was doing, people started saying, he's not even a nutritionist. What does he know? Now, remember when I taught low fat, man, they thought I was the bomb. Like, well, this guy really knows his stuff. And, and that's true in a lot of fields, by the way. When you start to question orthodoxy, they start to question your credentials and they start. Oh, yeah. So um, I did what a number of people have done in the case. I went back to school. And long story short, you know, I, I now have the, the letters after my name and now I can stand up and argue with them on any stage and have done so or any radio show or TV show. And most of the time, it's a pretty compelling argument. I haven't. Right. Been, you know, and so, except that now people can't quite dismiss it as much. Right. So I had I had this skepticism about it. I was lucky enough to have some brilliant mentors who were also skeptical about the whole cholesterol saturated fat thing. There are whole organizations now like the Western Price Foundation, you know, the ancestral foods thing that are just, we never should have gone on this crazy uh, program. So it's, I, I'm not hardly alone on this. Um, and, and what happened was I had a very successful book and the book was called the 150 healthiest foods on earth. It was my third book. And my second was living low carb, which was about all the research on all the low carb diets ever. Um, and that's still out. That's in its fourth edition now. And now has the carnivore diet and the keto diet and all the other things that have become more popular recently. But um, I, I wrote 150 healthiest foods on earth. And, and you probably know this from your vast amount of dealings with publishers and authors. Publishers love successes and they love follow-ups. They love sequels, right. just like movie producers. They want die, yeah. die Hard's great. They want Die Hard Six. So I had 150 healthiest foods on earth, followed by the 150 uh, most effective ways to live longer, followed by the 150 ways to boost your energy. And we had a whole series of 150 books. And they, thank you, did well, especially the foods. And the publisher came to me at, at this time and said, we've got the greatest idea for the next book. How about the 150 foods that most lower your cholesterol? And I said, well, that's a very interesting idea and you should probably get another person to write it. That's not for me. Why they say? And I said, because I don't, I no longer believe cholesterol is the proper target for heart disease prevention. I'm not really interested in telling people how to lower it because I think that's not what we should be looking at. And they were horrified. They were, what are you talking about? 
And much back and forth between me and the publisher, I said, if you want me to write a really interesting book about this, I'll tell you what the myths are about cholesterol, but I'm not going to tell you how to lower it because I don't think that's what we should be focused on. They were kind enough to listen. We did have some back and forth about it. And finally, what they said was, okay, we're certainly not just publishing a book that basically turns all of medicine on its its butt, you know, from some cockamamie nutritionist who came late to the game and got, you know, if you can find a doctor to co-author it, we will do it. But it can't just be an MD. It's got to be a cardiologist and it can't just be a cardiologist. It has to be a world renowned cardiologist because we need cover. So I call up Steve Sinatra, who by now is a friend of mine. I know from functional medicine and functional nutrition. So listen, what do you think about this? He says, I'm in. And that's how we got to write that book. After many years of being in the mainstream with low fat, and this is true for Steve, you've had him on your show. Steve was a a paid representative of one of the biggest drug firms in the country. He did seminars and educational workshops for doctors, which are large, which are just nothing other than marketing um, for the drug. And he did that for the statin drugs. So he knows from the inside, he knows how the sausage is made. And, And of course, when he sort of got, I just can't come to Jesus moment, if you will, and he realized that this is not as we've been taught. Cholesterol doesn't cause heart disease. Lowering cholesterol, as especially as we measure it now, and I hope we get into that because it's such a double whammy. Not only doesn't it predict it, we are measuring it wrong. If we right. measured it right, it actually can tell us something. But this yeah. measurement, and I hope we'll get into that later. So We, we will. And uh, one of the things that I think a lot of people don't really understand which is kind of some uh, someplace I want to start with this talking about the book is what is cholesterol? First Great. of all, let's talk about that. It's a molecule without, do you remember they used to have these TV ads? Like this is your brain on drugs. They'd scramble the eggs and put them in the front. Okay. So I used to do a demonstration about this is your brain on cholesterol off cholesterol. If you had a big balloon to represent like a healthy body, if you prick it, that's your brain without cholesterol. Cholesterol is a vitally important molecule without which you would die, period. You make, it's so important that what you eat of it almost doesn't matter because your body is making 80% of the cholesterol in your body at any given time. So for example, if you eat more, the body says, okay, we don't need as much. We make less. You start to eat nothing. It's going to turn up the factory. It's just like importing coffee. Like if you got a great crop, you don't import as much. If you don't have any, you better start buying from Brazil. And that's what happens with cholesterol. So it's this vitally important molecule. What's it important for? Memory, thinking, brain function, immunity. Should I repeat that? Immunity. There's actually new data. Steve just showed me data that high cholesterol levels are actually protective against this uh, MSAR virus, another cousin of all these things. It's a, it's a particular virus, but it's in the same family. And, and high cholesterol has actually been shown to be protective against that. Anyway, it's a very important molecule and you need it to live. It is in the class of molecules called sterols. That's not very important. It's just how it's, how it's molecularly made. And um, I think the most important thing for the average, the thing that's going to be most surprising to people is cholesterol can't travel in the blood. 
It has to travel in a container. Because if it were in the blood floating around, it just, it doesn't do it. It's like all in water. It's, it's a hydrophobic compound. It needs to be carried. Just like oil would have to be in a bottle. If I was going to throw it across a bottle, the bathtub, it better be in the, in the bottle or it's just going to go into the water and do nothing. So those containers are called lipoproteins. That's the L in HDL, LDL. HDL is a high-density lipoprotein, a high-density boat, if you will. LDL is a low-density lipoprotein, LDL. And all the density means is that if you put it in some kind of watery solution, the high-density ones will float to the bottom because they're heavy, and the low-density ones will, will float at the top because they're, lo- they're low in density. So that's all it means. It's, very, it's, it's a very simple concept, but what I want people to understand is the lipoproteins are where the action is, not the cholesterol. The lipoprotein is the, is the boat. Cholesterol is the cargo. Our emphasis on the cargo is just incorrect because it's the lipoproteins that bump up against each other and that get behind the endothelial wall and start the, the process of plaque. And we've been concentrating on what those boats are carrying. And let me explain why that's, that's such a mistake. If you had waterways that were clogged up with uh, medicine, with pill bottles, and that plastic was just clogging and it was you know, dissolving and it was causing all kinds of things, it was killing the fish. So you have a, a plastic bottle problem in your waterways. Is what particular pill in the bottle really an issue? It's the least important thing of all. Is there one, two pills, four pills? They're not an issue. The issue is the plastic. The issue is the boat. Now, you might well say, yeah, but also if that plastic breaks, also those drugs are released into the water. Yeah, but they wouldn't be released if you didn't have the plastics there in the first place and they weren't getting damaged by banging up against each other. So here's, here's another image you can use for why we are focused on the lipoprotein, the boat, rather than the cargo. If you have lots of boats in the water, you have more of a likelihood of an accident. If you have a lot of people in a nightclub, there's more likelihood somebody's going to spill a drink, bump into somebody else and start an argument and fight. When there's lots of people, there's lots more, it's a bigger thing to manage a crowd. Well, it's the same thing with lipoproteins. We have tests now, sophisticated cholesterol tests, not this BS out of date, past its expiration date, um, good and bad cholesterol. I'll tell you how that came about in a minute, but it's, it's so out of date that it's laughable. It would be like using an Atari 64 computer in the days of the Mac iOS 9. Or, you know, it's, just, it's just crazy. Um, so we now know how to measure all 13 subdivisions of cholesterol, not good and bad, but there's 13 of them altogether and they behave differently. And more importantly, we know how to measure the number of boats, the number of lipoproteins that are in the water. Now that cholesterol test is useful. So uh, tell us about that standard test. It's as good as an astrology report from People Magazine. Sometimes it'll be right. Once in a while it'll be right, (laughs) but you might as well throw it up on a on a dartboard. Once in a while, you'll get a bullseye. But 
What actually predicts bad things is the number of part, what particles, lipoproteins are called particles, the number of particles, the number of boats in the water, the number of lipoproteins, that's a meaningful number. They're not testing for that. We know how to test for that. That has been around 15, 20 years. That test is given by LabCorp and Quest. Um, there's no reason not to unless the doctor never heard of it or doesn't think you need it or it's not covered by insurance. But in terms of good medicine, good functional medicine, that's what you want to know. What is that test called? There are different names for it. It's normally the, the class of tests, they, different labs have different names for it, but it's called a particle test. Particle. You're testing okay. for the number of particles, the distribution of particles. Sometimes the big fluffy ones don't do much damage, but the little beady ones do. You want to know that. That's the test you should be doing. One of the three take-home points from the book, The Great Cholesterol Myth, is this. The HDL-LDL test should be retired forever. And, ladies and gentlemen, if you've gotten a prescription for a drug that's based on that test, go back and get another test. You should never get a prescription, and everyone does, but we should never again write a prescription or get a prescription that is based on this obsolete test. It would be doing, it would be like giving you a prescription based on, you know, phrenology or something completely out of date, like feeling the brain and finding out where the bumps are. I mean, these things were popular 100 years ago, too. So I know, and what you're saying is pretty, pretty radical for many people. For many, for, for the, I understand that. It, it's a huge leap for most people who are, half the country is just learning about low fat. <laughs> you know what I mean? And now to go yeah. back and say, guys, we were wrong. They're just learning that information. So I'm very, Steve and I, everybody in the cholesterol movement, and it's huge. I can't even tell you the percentage of doctors that have increased at all the conferences I go to are like, you know, of course we don't use HDL and LDL anymore, but that's a few hundred nutritionally aware doctors who stay in, in, up with functional medicine. There's 800,000 doctors in America. Most of them do not. So yeah. I know that this is going to be a very long, um, a, a long journey, a lot of education. There's a lot of interest in keeping it the way it is. There's a lot of conservatism in the medical profession. They don't like to be wrong. They don't like to change their ways. They don't like to rethink things. They don't stay on top of stuff. <clears throat> Lots of reasons for that. Um, but it is definitely going to be quite a shock to many people to learn that the HDL and LDL test that they have relied on, they may even be taking statin drugs because their doctor told them their LDL is too high. And they will be very surprised and, and probably upset to learn that that isn't the case. And that they really you know, also what you're saying, we know that the pharmaceutical industry does not want this information to get out because the amount of statin sold in this country, I think it's number two to diabetes drugs. I think statins are. Is that correct? Well, for, close. Many, for many years, it was number one. It was the most, you know, Crest or I don't know which particular, Lipitor, one of them. Uh, but statin drugs have been top five, I don't know, for, as long as I can remember. Um, and slipped in and out of right. the is about a $31 billion industry if you include everything that that, that industry encompasses, not just um, cholesterol medications, but low-fat foods and anti-cholesterol, uh, you know, uh, food products, all of that, it's a pretty big, and, and the National Cholesterol Education Program, you're talking about a little over $30 billion. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's a big thing to turn that boat around. 
why I love to do podcasts like yours. Well, I don't expect that the entire audience is going to go, oh, my God, my doctor is kind of behind the times. And, you know, maybe I should look into this and, and, and reevaluate my low-fat diet and understand that actually you know, all the things that I've been taught about diet and about risk factors, uh, while they're not 100% wrong and nobody's postulating a conspiracy theory, there's a lot of misinformation in there that has set, seeped in through the years about managing blood cholesterol and managing saturated fat in the diet and, and you know, avoiding animal products. It's, it, it is not quite the way we all heard it. Now, I don't expect everyone to do that palm, palm to the forehead slapping moment where you go, aha. But what I love is when one or two or three or four people get it on a show like this. When I get a letter from someone who says, I'm a doctor, you changed my practice. Yeah, I've, I've bought three copies of, of your books and I've, I've given them to my patients. I don't get hundreds of letters like that, but you get one and you feel anyone who's gone, I'm not, I'm not going to convert the world to this. I just right. want a couple of people's right. lives. I always tell people when I interview somebody, don't totally take our word for everything. Do your own research, read, read books, do, you know, empower yourself to learn. Cause I've always said that I've said my goal is to make, to help you become the leader of your own healthcare team. Exactly. It doesn't mean you ignore experts. It doesn't mean that expert opinion isn't important. It doesn't mean that we're anti-science. It means that you, I, you know, I came from psychology and life coaching and then into fitness and I worked with clients. So I have some feeling of what the whole person who engages in, in a process like going to the gym and, and working out or going on a diet or even trying to just improve their health with supplements. I know those, those people as whole people. And, and I know that a great part of healing is to take an active part in your own healing and, and, and to be the leader of your own team and to exactly. use those experts, but to not be slavishly entranced in what expert opinion is and to look a little more deeply because there's expert opinion out there that says we should put statins in the water supply. Yeah. And I think, most I think doctors in America actually said that. And I, and he's a great doctor, except he's crazy when it comes to that idea. They are so entrenched with that old concept that it's, you know, it's a very hard uh, challenge. Yeah. Well, well said. So uh, let's talk about statins for a minute. The the over the number one thing to remember about statins, it's like in real estate, location, location. The only thing, the thing you remember about statins is they lower cholesterol. They lower LDL cholesterol, which is I'm saying is not what we should be looking at anyway. We need to be looking at under the hood, all the different kinds of LDL, not the category itself. Right, um, right. But they do a very good job of lowering LDL. And as we say in the book, they do a great job. We know how to lower cholesterol. We don't necessarily know how to prevent or treat heart disease. And we certainly don't know how to save lives with statin drugs, but we do very successfully lower cholesterol. Um, it's, it's very interesting. The cholesterol's, uh, cholesterol, uh, statin drugs came into wide use around early 90s. And prior to that, they did have very effective cholesterol-lowering medications. And there was a, 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 we talk about this in the book too, there was, a, there was a compendium of all the studies on cholesterol-lowering medication prior to statins. And they looked at all of them very, very rigorously. And what they found was they lower cholesterol great. They just don't save lives. Now, statins come along and get marketed really well. And here's the thing about statins. They actually do three things. 
low in cholesterol, which is what they're marketed for, but they're also mildly anti-inflammatory and they also mildly thin the blood. Now, I happen to think you can do both those things with fish oil or vitamin E or ginkgo with no side effects, but they do have that mild effect. And for some people who are so inflamed and whose blood is so thick and, and can use any help they can get, a statin might be a mild improvement over that because it's a, a little anti-inflammation is better than no anti-inflammation. So they do those things. And all these studies that came out, all sponsored by the drug companies that showed that statins lowered the risk for heart disease and did all of that. Uh, we don't even know if that's because it had an effect on cholesterol because prior to statins, lowering cholesterol did nothing. It just lowered cholesterol. So, uh, you know, I'm very suspicious about the, the statin studies almost all been done by the drug companies when better researchers who look at this with a more objective eye, reanalyze that data. It doesn't look nearly as good as they say uh, it does. We actually uh, did some of that in the book and showed the graphs. Um, but we are not wildly anti-statin. We're anti-overprescription of statin. We think that they are handing this stuff out like candy. You have to remember whatever research established statins as having a role was done on middle-aged men with previous heart conditions or previous heart attacks. So this is what was called secondary prevention. You've already had a heart attack, Mr. Jones. Now we want to make sure you don't get a second one. That's secondary prevention. Statins had a mild effect on that. It, it, it had a mild improvement of the risk odds of people who were middle-aged men with previous heart attacks. But then the companies got greedy. They do what every corporate, every corporation does, not just in medicine, but in sailboats and everything. They did brand extension. How can we sell this to more people? Middle-aged men who've already had a heart attack is a very small population. What about the ones who haven't had a heart attack? Maybe we can use it for what's called primary prevention. We'll prevent you getting your first heart attack. Hey, maybe we can use it on women. What about middle-aged? What about old people? Let's use it in the 70s and a couple of years ago, there was a massive PR attempt to get mothers to put their 13-year-olds on statins because they had high cholesterol. Let's get it. Let's nip it in the bud. So it was this massive expansion using a drug, which you alluded to earlier when talking about the side effects, is very far from side effect free. Let's just say that. I'm not saying it's poison, it's going to kill you, but there's a list of side effects you don't want to have that is as long as a legal path. And doctors don't tend to report them. There's a study we mentioned in the book as well about that. They don't report them because when asked about them, they think it's something else that's causing the symptom. They don't think it's, they, they have been so well marketed to, it's inconceivable to them that this could actually be statin side effects. Many well-intended doctors. I mean, it's not like they're handing them out like candy. They really believe that this is yes. the way. And, and yeah. I, think, I think let's be clear about that. These guys aren't just like, yeah, I'm going to make money. No. Um, and to their credit, I mean, they have, they're very beleaguered. They, they're yeah. hardworking. Yeah. They're working in practices that often constrain them with best practices. They are understandably very afraid of lawsuits. So a lot of what they prescribe is protective. If, you, if the standard of practice is this guy's cholesterol goes to 220, we better give him a stand. And you didn't, Dr. Jones. You could be liable for some uh, for, for lawsuits. You could be liable for not doing the standard of medicine. Why didn't you give him 
what we've all agreed you should be giving him. So there's a lot of things that constrain doctors from making the yeah. leap to, to, you know, a different way of measuring things. And, but what I'd like to, to make sure that we talk about is what causes heart disease in the first place. If it's not cholesterol and it's not saturated fat, how does this all happen? What we did was uncover research. I want to be clear. I don't do original research. I am the person who explains that research. You you interpret the research. That's what I'm good at. You know, I hats off to people who run in lab coats and get um, um, NIH grants and and run four phase clinical studies. But I know how to read that stuff. And I know how to translate that stuff. And I know how to explain that stuff. But I, so I, and and I think that's important because Unfortunately, most of the people who do that research are not very good at talking to the public about what it means. Right. When we connected the dots of the research that has been sitting there in plain sight, uh, literally hiding in plain sight, research that goes back to the 1970s, a couple of things become clear. There is a spectrum of cardiometabolic diseases. It may start with what we call pre-diabetes. And let's be clear, pre-diabetes is diabetes. It just ain't happened yet. Now let's be clear about something else that most people don't know. Diabetes is pre-heart disease. 80% of diabetics die of heart disease. And they're now calling Alzheimer's disease type 3 diabetes. Correct. Where I'm going with this is that there is an underlying metabolic condition that over time will lead you right down that track. And where you happen to be on it, it's the same track. You caught it at pre-diabetes and maybe you're taking a bunch of medications so it doesn't quite become diabetes, but you're fighting that metabolic condition anyway. And then maybe you've got diabetes, but you don't want to get heart disease. So you're taking a bunch of medications not to get any further along. It's one path, man. And that condition is something called insulin resistance. And it shows up a decade before your doctor says, Mrs. Jones, your LDL cholesterol is a little high. Or, or if you're a diabetic, you know, your A1C is starting to edge up there. Or your fasting blood glucose is high years before you see that. Those are late markers. Insulin resistance shows up early. And that's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about getting this message out there. Because insulin resistance... The, the underlying predisposer, if you will, that can take you into this whole cardiometabolic hell of, of prediabetes, diabetes, heart disease, all of it, is treatable, preventable, and reversible with diet. No I agree 100%. Now, let me just add for skeptics who are saying, ah, it can't be one cause. It's not. Insulin resistance doesn't cause every single case of heart disease. There are people, there are four-year-olds with heart disease. There are people who, they're viral connections and, and all kinds of things. But it tracks with, predicts all of those things, including heart disease, as well as smoking cigarettes predicts and tracks with lung cancer. Now, smoking cigarettes, as all doctors know, is not always, I mean, there's, everybody's got an uncle, Jim, who died at 102 and smoked two pa- packs of camels a day. There are smokers who don't get lung cancer and there are people who get lung cancer who have never smoked. Right. Uh, 
by and large, it's like an 800% increase in risk. With that, it's a very big tracker. Insulin resistance, the thing I'm talking about, which is basically a problem with carbohydrate metabolism. And I'll be happy to explain it in more detail. But if you want to just code that long-term insulin resistance, and you don't, you're an audience member who maybe never heard it or isn't quite sure what it means, just think error in carbohydrate metabolism. That condition underlines all these things. And we can actually get in there and do something about that right now. And it doesn't have much to do with lowering LDL cholesterol. It has to do with diet. And again, not saying it's accounting for every case, but in our book, we, we, we actually quote some research, and I think this is conservative, thank you, conservative research that says that if we could wipe out insulin resistance, if we could really like reduce that, 42% of heart attacks, gone. I think the number is higher. But even 42% of heart attacks without drugs, with just a dietary change, it's pretty impressive. Very impressive. And actually considering that heart attacks, are the number one cause heart disease? Heart number disease. one cause of death. Let me give you a statistic about about heart disease and and cholesterol that you, all, you guys will all love. So you would think this LDL is a wonderful predictor of heart disease. The way they have told us, the way they have treated us. Oh my God, Mr. Jones, it's one hundred and fifty. You got to get on medic. You would think that this is a real good predictor. So there have been a number of studies where they look at hospital admissions. And they look at hospital admissions specifically for cardiovascular disease or coronary artery disease, either, either variation of, of the stuff we're talking about. The heart is going to be deeply affected. And they look at the admissions for these problems. And then they track that against their cholesterol levels. Depending on the study you read, between 50 and 70% of people who are admitted to United States hospitals for cardiovascular disease have perfectly normal LDL. It doesn't even predict heart disease. And we are giving prescriptions about it. We're lowering it. We're frantic about, oh my God, my cholesterol is too high. I'm going to get a heart attack. And it's not even a predictor. It's a refocuser because I think there's so many things that, you know, the low fat diet to come back to this prescription for lowering cholesterol, which is the low fat diet, um, has really created a lot of this metabolic illness that we're seeing. Yes. And, and I know everyone's sick of talking about COVID, but there is a connection to that. And it's another reason why I'm so passionate about getting the message out. Look at all the preconditions for COVID. Yep. Look at all what they call the comorbidity. These are the conditions that, oh, we got to keep it away from older people because they've got diabetes or they've got heart conditions or they've got immune uh, system dysfunction or they've got all of these things. Insulin resistance underlies all of them. I was even surprised because I looked at the comorbidities and well, obviously I know it underlines prediabetes, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, heart disease, obesity. I know that. But there are three other comorbidities that I wasn't sure. Lung disease, liver disease, and kidney disease. Those are also comorbidities that you don't want to have if you happen to contract COVID. And I wondered, could insulin be resistance be related to those two? So I spent a morning doing research in the National Institute of Health, uh, the National Institute of Medicine uh, Library, which is online at pubmed.com. You can do it yourself. And I put in insulin resistance and lung disease, insulin resistance and kidney disease, insulin resistance and liver disease. Guess what? Statistically significant relationship, a statistically significantly higher number of people get those diseases when they have insulin resistance. It underlines all of the comorbidities for 
COVID. So the question becomes, how important is it that we change our diets now? Because we are creating the conditions that make us vulnerable, not just to COVID, but the COVID-2, which will be here in a couple of years. I guarantee you there'll be a COVID-3. So you want your immune system working operationally. You want it to be at top level. And any of these metabolic diseases, which are basically caused by insulin resistance, any one of them immediately cripples your immune system. They make it less effective than it would be if you didn't have that disease. So absolutely, urgency of getting out of, we need a woke moment in nutrition. We need to literally understand that this whole low fat stuff and the avoidance of saturated fats and the avoid and the inclusion of so much vegetable oil, which we, that's the biggest one of the most awful mistakes nutrition has ever made is to make vegetable oil into something desirable. Uh, I was lucky enough to have a a, a genius nutrition mentor when I started studying, going back to school for nutrition in the early nineties, who, who said, who once said, who quipped once, um, you know, if you want to kill somebody, just sneak into their kitchen and replace all their oils with safflower, sunflower, soybean, and canola. I mean, it's it's one of the most inflammatory things in the American diet. We eat 16 times more of it than we do the anti-inflammatory oils like omega, omega-3s. And it it and sugar are what, what is really contributing to heart disease, not saturated. Yeah. I mean, there's so much to talk about, but we've, we've got maybe 10 more minutes to go yeah, here. But let's talk about diet. I'm asked a lot, especially since I do a lot of educational stuff, about the confusing amount of contradictory nutrition theories out there. Right. Me too. So people hear vegan and they hear carnivore. I mean, you can't get more opposite than that. You hear bulletproof and you hear keto and you hear um, um, everything in moderation and you hear the you know food pyramid. And people ask me constantly, how do I make sense of this? Where should I look for guidance? So here's my answer to that. The human genus, by which I mean our progenitors, the not not just Homo sapiens, but the, all the other Homo gene, genus, Homo, Neanderthals, all of them, go, go back roughly 2.4 million years. Homo sapiens, depending on the anthropology text you read, about 110,000 years ago out of Africa, modern homo sapiens evolved. Processed food started about 100 years ago and McDonald's became a franchise in 1957. So here's the thought exercise. Where should we look for guidance? If you looked at the human genus, our plan on the planet is a 24 hour time clock. Processed food's been here about 10 seconds. So when people ask me, how do I make sense of it? I go, let's, let's take an elevator. Let's take a helicopter view and look at what sustained the human genus for 2.4 million years prior to the last 100 years. It's a very simple diet and it applies to everyone. It's food you could hunt, fish, gather, or pluck. I call them the Johnny Bowden four food groups. Now, you can do a vegan version of that and a carnivore. It's all about the food that you could have hunted, you could have fished, you could have gathered off the ground, or you could have plucked from a tree. In that case, it is almost 100% likely to be good for you. Yes, there's some toxic mushrooms, but you get the idea. Yeah. As, my, as I used to say sometimes, 
if you imagine that you're naked on the African Serengeti with nothing but a spear, what would you eat? Because it would probably be good for you. And the rest of it is details. And when I tell people this, I say you can really condense this information into three words, eat real food. Unfortunately, a lot of people don't know what real food is. They're, well, does kale chips count? No, it doesn't. <laughs> and, the, and the actually, you have to be really strict. If you're asking if it's a real food, assume it's not. I want stuff your great, great, great grandmother would have recognized as food. Right. You know, they did the Blue Zone research. They yeah. showed some of these people in the longest lived places in the world, kind of isolated villages and stuff. And they, sh- they showed them modern supermarket food and they, they, they'd look at it and they go, what is this? Literally, what is yeah. this? Yeah. So I want stuff that they don't say, what is this to? Yeah, yeah. And, and I want stuff that if I put it in my backyard, it would spoil and look disgusting in a day. When you do that, you notice a couple things. Besides the fact that your energy gets better, that you lose weight, that you feel better, that you know, you're here and there, all of that stuff. You, you notice that really there's, there's um, no low-fat food in nature. The cavemen didn't hunt low-fat caribou. <laughs> you know, they didn't have low-fat wool mammoths. You need the full-fat version of all these foods. This, you know, the ultimate food product to make them into healthy things with tons of wheat flour. And that's a wheat that we never ate before that's, that's less than 50 years old. It's a, it's a different form of wheat. It's right. high gluten. It's highly inflammatory. Yeah. We were never adapted to that amount of it in every product that we touch. Yeah. But it's low fat, sweetened with high fructose corn syrup. So we have been looking for the wrong enemy. The enemy is not that. And, and I can give you a couple of really interesting studies that happened just in the last, there's one in the last year that's really interesting. This was done in Malaysia, where almost all the fat is Malaysian palm oil, which is a sustainable good and it's local, it's great. And, and so that's kind of a variable that was kind of kept common. So you can't say, well, these people ate this fat and they almost all, about 80% of their, their fat calories came from Malaysian palm oil. Okay, so what this study did was it looked at food patterns of eating, like people who ate high fat, low carb, people who ate high carb, low fat, people who ate high carb, high fat, low fat, everything in the matrix you could put together. And protein tended to be moderate in all the diets. So it was kind of a, right? And they used not high and low cholesterol. I mean, HDL, they used the markers I'm talking about, the really important ones, the, the particles, the, the, the patterns. The particle size. And, yeah, all of that stuff. They yeah. looked at APOB, which is a great test for, you right. know, and they looked at all those things. So they really had a, a marker of cardio risk. And what they found was it didn't matter a whit how much fat people ate, but mattered what put them into the risk factor was the more carbs they ate. So the high-carb, low-fat diet, not so good. The high-carb, high-fat diet, also not so good. But the low-fat versions of all of them, I mean, the, 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 the uh, higher-fat versions, lower-carb versions of all in the matrix were the most successful in, in terms of avoiding risk factors and real risk factors, not just high LDL and high. Um, and there are other studies like that. So, so I, I'm pretty sure that the, the way we need to move is away from processed food. Most oh, of no, no question. No question about that. 
And let's talk about, I know my audience is pretty educated, but what do you think are some of the best high fat foods that we should be eating? Avocado. Absolutely. I put, we wrote a book in 2016, Dr. Stephen Masley and I called Smart Fat, which is basically what you and I are talking about now, that that fat doesn't divide into good and bad by animal vegetable. It divides by toxic, non-toxic. And there are toxic fats in both categories. And we need to, you know, stop looking at that label. And that's what we were talking about in that book. And we put an avocado on the cover of the book. Because it's hard to think of something more symbolic. And it's plant-based for those who who are concerned about animal products, even to this day, for maybe for other reasons than, than health. Right. Right. I think what is important, if you choose to eat meat, which is a great source of saturated fat, I think the quality of the meat matters. I've often said that if the only meat available to me here in the United States was factory farmed meat, which is what most of the grocery store meat is, what most of the restaurant meat is, all of the fast food meat is, if that were all that were available to me, I'd become a vegan. And I am very far from a vegan. I'm much closer to a uh, I, it, There is, they are two different, excuse the pun, it is two different animals when you're yes. talking factory farmed, uh, confined animal feeding operations, which are yes. just factories that happen to, use breathing sentient creatures as, as their product and have no bear no resemblance to a grass fra- uh, uh, raised pasture raised humanely raised cow of the farms that I grew Absolutely. up around um, they are two different foods and uh, the vegans are right in that when they when they say all these terrible things about meat and factory farming, they are absolutely right about the factory farming. They are They're not right about the health properties of meat, but yeah. they are right about this this meat that most of us get. And and yeah. I think the only yeah. difference that I would have there is that there is another kind of meat available. And it does come from humanely um, raised cattle that are raised by yeah. farm, farmers that really care. But we have a veterinarian out here in California um, who literally has a farm like that. He's a vet. And I've never heard anybody talk with more passion about animal care. And, yeah. human, and, and I think that is so important. And what I tell my clients, you know, if, if you choose to eat meat, look for humanely raised, 100% grass fed and finished. And, and, and yeah, thank you. Because they, because once again, the marketing got deemed yeah. Every cow in America is grass-fed for the six, first six months of their life. Right. So when, they, when they're selling grass-fed meat in the supermarket for $2 a pound, they're lying. Yeah, yeah. You want, yeah. You want from birth to hopefully the most stress-free death possible, but you want from birth to death. You don't want them finished on grain, which is basically like saying, I ate really healthy for like a couple of months, and then I just pigged out for a month, and let's take my blood work. You, you have antibiotics, you have steroids, you have an, uh, um, bovine growth hormone, you have, and all of those chemicals get stored in the fat body. So yeah, you're eating regular meat, you better eat low fat. When I'm eating grass-fed meat, and they said, you want the low fat? No, bring on the fat. I'll take the highest fat amount because I'm no yeah. longer afraid of it. There's nothing yeah. being stored in it. And yeah. you mentioned that there are good sources of saturated. I'd like to also point out that half the half or almost half of the fat in beef 
and Barbara is acting monounsaturated. So you really, it's it's funny that we it, it gets blamed like, oh, it's all saturated fat. Half of it's the same fat that's in, in olive oil. It's yeah, grass-fed meat is not a problem. The fat from grass-fed meat is perfectly fine. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is great information, and there's so much more we could talk about. So there's a whole paradigm shift here. It's an educational shift that you and I are in this nutrition world, and we live it, and we talk to people that are in this in this world. But there's there's many people who really don't have the understanding of all the the new information that's become available to you and I. You know, we. I, I love the book. I love that there's another way that we can address heart disease that, you know, I'm going to just say makes more sense than what we're doing because obviously it's not really working with the statins. It's still the number one killer. And there's so many people on statins. So it's time to do something different. And eat your way to heart this is available on Amazon and yeah. everywhere. I'll, I'll put a link on the show page. Thank make you. It easy, easy for people. It's been really great talking about all this. I guess if I had to, if I had a, a, a final statement to make about this posterity, it's that people need, to, we all need to realize that disease is very multifaceted. Right. And it's rare. I'm not saying it never happens, but it's rare that you can pin an entire disease on one lab metric. Heart disease is promoted by stress, anxiety, by not having relationships, by being lonely, by not being physically fit, by eating too much sugar and starch, uh, not enough good fat. I mean, there's certainly dietary and exercise components, but we tend to forget the non-dietary and exercise components of, of disease and health. And they involve your community, how related you are to other people, how much attention you pay to things and people and objects outside of yourself and, and how much you give, your state of mind, your sleep, your digestion, your gut health. All of those things have profound effects. And I've seen people with like blood levels of stuff that you go, you should be dead and they are thriving. And you look at their lives and you go, you know, maybe some of those things are making up, maybe there's a balance here. Maybe it's like a big health bank. And yeah, your cholesterol or your A1C might be a little high. That's kind of a withdrawal from the bank, but you're doing all this other stuff, your vitamins, your, your, your relationships, your passion, your pets, your walks in the greenery, maybe those are deposits and maybe they can a little bit offshoot a, a, a pesky lab metric. And no one's saying ignore the lab metrics. I'm saying there's more to health than just. I, I agree 100%. Yeah. Body, mind, spirit, it all needs to be in balance. It does. You can eat the healthiest diet in the world. And if you're angry and if you uh, just your whole ad- attitude toward life is negative, chances are you're going to create this. But it's so important. We talk about meditation. Yeah. We talk about heart math. We talk about yeah. the, because they all matter. They all matter. Yeah, they do. So thank you, Johnny. And I just, I love the book. I I love the information and I highly recommend that people get it and read it and see what they think. Thank you. 